1: Live from London, I'm Max Foster in for Julia Chatterley. Uh, Welcome to First Move. Inflation in the US remains stubbornly high. The consumer price index rose 8.2% last month from a year ago. That is hotter than expected. The CPI is closely watched by the Federal Reserve as the central bank battles America's red-hot inflation. On Wall Street, US futures now are lower, as you'd expect, That latest data raising concerns that the Fed is likely to continue raising rates, frankly. Uh, Meanwhile, in Ukraine, uh, the capital region was attacked by kamikaze drones. Our live report from Kyiv coming up in just a moment, plus a rare public protest in China against President Xi Jinping and his Covid policy just days before he set to secure an historic third term. But first, let's get to those price pressures. Rahel Solomon joins us now. Um, it's going in the right direction, inflation, isn't it? But not as quickly as many had hoped.
2: I think- that's certainly a way to put it right. I mean, it's not necessarily getting much worse, but it's really taking some time, Max, before it starts to get significantly better. So just to reiterate some of those numbers, September consumer inflation coming in at 0.4 percent, yearly about 8.2 percent. But Max, to put that in perspective, 0.4 percent on a monthly basis. Last month, that number was actually closer to 0.1 percent. The month prior, the month prior, it was actually 0 percent. So really not moving in the right direction in a significant way. And when you look at, Max, where the largest increases in consumer inflation uh, were this month, it's really all of the essential categories. It's things like shelter or uh, what folks around the world might think of as accommodations. It was things like medical care. It was things like food. In fact, including in the report, every major category, every major food category, Max, saw increases. Things like cereal and bakery products, fruits, vegetables, meat, poultry, fish, eggs. You can go down the row and see these price pressures, these increases were pretty widespread in the food category and then some of those other categories that I mentioned. We did see decreases, however. We did see declines, of course, in energy, uh, but also things like used cars and trucks, things like apparel. So we did see some declines, but certainly in the major categories, the essential categories, we are still seeing increases. And what's really important for the Fed, of course, Max, is core inflation, which strips away categories like food and energy, which can be a bit more volatile. But even that continues to increase. So core inflation max increased 0.6 percent. That is the same as last month and on a yearly basis increased 6.6 percent. So at a time when we're all trying to figure out when will the Fed start to uh, cool it with these massive rate increases, a report like this certainly doesn't suggest that it will come, certainly not in the next meeting.
1: Massive rate increases, as you say, but presumably some people are saying they need to be even more aggressive because it's not working quickly enough.
2: It's not working quickly enough. That is fair. And yet, uh, the more aggressive they have to be, Max, the greater the likelihood of overdoing it, right? I mean, you have to put in perspective uh, 75 basis points, which is what we saw the last three Federal Reserve meetings. It's starting to feel normal, but that is unprecedented. I mean, you would have to go—we haven't seen it in modern history. So you're right. There are some people who are saying, it's not working. Go harder. Go harder. And then on the other hand, you have people saying, you're doing too much. Slow down. Slow down. And the, the harsh reality is no one really knows how this is going to end on the other side of this, right? How significant or how harsh these interest rate hikes will actually be felt in the economy. And so it really is a great mystery. I was talking to an economist recently uh, from Harvard who said, no one knows how this is going to end. But uh, looking ahead to the next Federal Reserve's meeting, it is looking more likely that we will see another massive rate increase of three-quarters of a percent, because, as you said, Max, the medicine isn't working, certainly not quickly enough.
1: Uh, Rahel, thank you. Um, fascinating insight. We're going to go to Ukraine now, though, uh, as Russia continues to punish innocent vi- um, civilians. Uh, we have reports of massive shelling in the southern Ukrainian city of Mikolaev. The mayor posted on Telegram that a five story residential building was hit and two of the upper floors were destroyed. <laughs> Uh, Rescue has pulled out a child, but at least seven other people are still missing in the rubble. Uh, Fred Plightkin joins me now. A familiar story, sadly. Mm.
3: Yeah, it is certainly a familiar story, and it's certainly something that, especially those two bigger southern cities, Zaporizhia and then also Mikolaev, like in these overnight strikes, they keep getting hit once again by some pretty heavy Russian ordnance. And you know, one of the things that we picked up on as we read those reports from the local uh, governor, saying that that building had been leveled and other buildings, quite frankly, had been damaged as well, is that apparently the Ukrainians believe that the Russians use S three hundred rockets for all of this. Max, those are rockets that are normally used to shoot down planes. They're surface to air missiles um, that. Can obviously reach very high but if you use them against ground targets if you fire them against ground targets then they're not very accurate and then obviously the chances of civilian casualties are very high now by now the authorities there on the ground in Mykolaiv have confirmed that uh, at least two people have been killed in those strikes uh, one younger child was rescued from the rubble uh, earlier today after apparently having been there for several hours but it once again underscores the ukrainians uh, saying that they need additional surface to air assets, Western assets, um, the country's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, he actually told a meeting of European lawmakers by video conference, of course, um, that right now the Ukrainians only have about 10 percent of the anti-aircraft uh, capabilities that they actually need. And so that's definitely something that certainly hampers and it makes it quite dangerous in places across the country, not just there in the south, Max.
1: In terms of wider efforts to resolve all of this, um, Turkey getting involved again, putting itself forward as a proposed peacemaker. Uh, Do you think that's a useful Mm -hmm. plan?
3: Well, so far, Turkey's track record has actually been uh, uh, quite good uh, as far as trying to broker at least some sort of limited deals. Uh, You'll recall the grain agreement that uh, managed to get a lot of grain released from those ports uh, in in Ukraine that had been caught up there for a very long period of time that essentially had been uh, blockaded. Now that is able to get out. So Turkey is one of those countries that at least has a certain amount of trust, both with the Ukrainians and with the Russians. Of course, the Ukrainians um, uh, very much appreciate the fact that the Turks have sold them those Bayraktar drones that made such a huge difference, especially in the early stages of this war. At the same time, we know as also from a meeting today between Vladimir Putin and, and Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, that those two countries also have very good relations and ones that, of course, that have been strengthened, especially over the past couple of years. If you look at, for instance, those two countries, countries interacting in Syria or, for instance, the Turks buying S-400 rockets from the Russians. So the possibility is there. But of course, we also understand that there's so little in the way of common ground right now between Ukraine and the Russians. And quite frankly, the Ukrainians are saying the proposals that the Russians have been putting forward are just absolutely outrageous and and unrealistic. And certainly, as long as Russia continues to claim that four or five regions of, uh, of Ukraine are now part of Russia, the Ukrainians really don't see any reason to negotiate. In fact, there is a decree in place by the Ukrainian president saying that there can be no negotiations under these circumstances with the Russians. So certainly it seems difficult. But at the same time, the Turks today, in the form of their president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, said he wants to see this conflict end as fast as possible. And of course, the Turks do have a vested interest in that. They are, of course, a country that's on the Black Sea that is directly affected by this conflict as well, Max.
1: Okay, Fred, thank you. Let's also speak to Salma Abdelaziz, because she's been following that uh, meeting between uh, Putin and his uh, Turkish counterpart. It's, you know, you'd love to be a fly on the wall, wouldn't you, um, to see how they could possibly resolve this. But uh, at least there's some optics there, right, that Russia wants to move forward. And, you know, or is that just pure optics and a distraction, frankly?
4: Well I think what was really interesting was just a just a short time ago during this meeting on the sidelines of this meeting in Astana with regional leaders President Putin yet again made this really curious proposal, Max, of setting up a gas hub, a natural gas hub in Turkey. President Putin going so far as to say we could build a pipeline to Turkey and use it to sell gas to Europe. It's a really curious idea, one that we only heard just yesterday from President Putin. Turkish officials seem to be taken aback by it, as you heard there from our colleague Fred. Uh, President Erdogan has maintained a good relationship with Moscow throughout this conflict, but absolutely no indication that Turkey was aware that President Putin was going to make this proposal and the first thing of course that comes to mind when you hear this is sanctions is the collective actions that European leaders have taken to try to wean themselves off of gas and oil. So President Putin seems to be using this as an opportunity to remind everyone of the leverage that he has. Europe was heavily dependent on Russian gas before this war, some 40% of gas imports to the EU came from Russia prior to this conflict. President Putin knows that European leaders are worried about getting through the winter with rising costs, with uh, the stockpiles of energy supplies they have. The hope here from the Kremlin is that the cost to Europeans for supporting the war in Ukraine will become so high that it breaks the resolve that we've seen across Europe so far, Max.
1: Okay, Salma, we keep watching those meetings. Thank you. Uh, In China, a rare protest has erupted over the government's strict zero COVID policy. Demonstrators hung banners attacking the official policy on a busy overseas overpass rather, um, in the capital, Beijing. In just a few days from now, the Communist Party begins its next Congress, at which President Xi Jinping is expected to secure an unprecedented third term. So then Selena Wang is in Hong Kong with more on this. And this really sort of stood out to you, didn't it? Didn't it? Because... These things so rarely happen and they rarely get out in terms of footage as well.
5: And Max, this type of demonstration, it's not just rare in China, it's especially Especially extraordinary and rare because it happened in Beijing this brazen show of defiance in the capital at a very sensitive time period as you say just days away from this Communist Party Congress this is a time when Beijing is really ramping up that security and surveillance and what really sticks out to me about this max is that it's not just attacking the zero covid policy in china but these banners are directly attacking xi jinping himself so one of the banners read quote go on strike remove dictator and national traitor Xi Jinping. There was also a loudspeaker that was repeating these messages over and over again. We also saw plumes of smoke coming from that bridge. We don't know what the cause of it was. There was also another banner that had this longer message. It said, quote, Say no to COVID test. Yes to food. No to lockdown. Yes to freedom. No to lies. Yes to dignity. No to great leader. Yes to vote. Don't be a slave. «Be a citizen». Now, this really reflects reflects this growing frustration in China over China's persistence in following this zero-COVID policy. Right now, as the rest of the world is moving on from COVID, China is still locking down entire cities over just a handful of COVID cases. They are sending all-close cases, all-close contacts and cases to government quarantine facilities. We've seen so many scenes of people struggling to get enough food, basic necessities, in these very harsh lockdowns. And the fact That this demonstration happened during such a critical period is really a really strong show of defiance. This is also in Beijing right now. They've turned it into a fortress leading up to this party, Congress. Our CNN team actually went down to this bridge area Shortly after it happened, a few hours later, and everything had been cleaned up. The police had taken the banners away. It was as if nothing had happened. And all these images that we are seeing coming out of this, they've been completely censored and scrubbed from China's internet. This is a regime obsessed with stability. So yes, this was a shocking show of defiance, but it was also very short-lived, Max.
1: Explain what we had out of Washington as well, that this report about from the Biden administration on future relationship between the U.S. and China. And this was long awaited, wasn't it?
5: This was. This was a more than 40-page report laying out the U.S. national security strategy. And what leapt out to me was just how big of a focus there was on China. And this document clearly lays out that China is the greatest long-term national security strategy for the United States. The document says that, yes, Russia is in the immediate short-term challenge as they've waged this brutal invasion on Ukraine. But when it comes to the long term, the document says China is the only country with the intent and increasingly the power to reshape the international order. Now, some of the backdrop here is that the Biden administration has said over and over again that they do not seek a new Cold War. However, this document does lay out this strategic vision of the world where the U.S. and its allies are increasingly united against and competing against China. And U.S.-China relations, of course, are now at their lowest period in decades. And the U.S. and China, Beijing, looking at this document, they increasingly see it as part of the U.S.'s moves to contain and suppress China's rise, Max.
1: Okay. Uh, Slin Wan in Hong Kong. Thank you very much indeed. As uh, students across Iran continue to join the nationwide anti-government protest, they now face the threat of being detained and sent to so-called psychological centres where they can then be reformed, uh, according to the country's education minister. Sinan's Jamana Karace has the latest.
6: Calls for nationwide protests on Wednesday brought Iranians back onto the streets of cities across the country. Protesters undeterred by a ruthless regime's crackdown on peaceful demonstrations. And they were met with utter brutality, baton swinging policemen beating up those who tried to get away. And this disturbing scene caught on camera plainclothes security forces opening fire on the streets of Tehran after a small group gathered chanting, Mullahs get lost. But perhaps the most terrifying response to protest this week is the government's decision to detain school children protesting and send them to psychological institutions to be quote reformed and re educated. A chilling message from a regime that now appears to feel threatened by fearless young schoolgirls. A regime clearly under pressure, not only struggling to contain protests that are spreading like a wildfire now facing strikes that could hit an economy already on its knees. Some oil workers now striking, blocking roads and burning tires. Their strikes so far limited and not unusual, but some are now joining in the anti-regime chants. This could be a sign of trouble the government literally can't afford.
1: Strikes have historically played a very important role in, in Iranian revolts. The Oil and gas industry, of course, is particularly sensitive because that is where much of the state's um, hard currency earnings uh, are derived from.
6: Many businesses in the mostly Kurdish region have been shuttered for days as calls grow for a national general strike.
7: There is a general strike. If
1: there is a nationwide general strike, I mean, what can the government do really? I mean, you can't send troops into people's homes to drag them out and force them to go to work. So, you know, that that would completely paralyze the state um, and would show the powerlessness of the state in the face of this um, movement.
6: A movement of nationwide protests that's morphed into an uprising, growing stronger by the day, proving harder and harder for the repressive republic to control. Shemana Karachi, CNN, Istanbul.
1: Straight ahead on First Move, coming in from the cold, Germany moves to avoid a winter energy crisis. Plus a fuel shortage of a different kind grips France, the petrol protest that's bringing transport to its knees. New hopes for a new breakthrough. Welcome back. Uh, Russia's President Putin says Europe's energy crisis is a problem of its own making. Uh, he was speaking at an energy conference in Moscow, where the head of Gazprom, the state-owned energy company, warned that whole countries run the risk of freezing this winter. Claire Sebastian looks at how Germany is preparing.
8: Through the early autumn drizzle, Germany is racing against time. Construction started on this liquefied natural gas terminal on its North Sea coast in May.
9: Normally, it takes four to five years to realize such a project, sometimes even six years.
8: This one will be
9: up and running by early
8: next year, its operator says, capable of providing up to 8% of all the gas Germany needs. Gas that used to come from Russia. Until the war in Ukraine, Russia provided more than half of Germany's gas. Now, because of Germany's own efforts to reduce its reliance and Russia cutting supplies no Russian gas is currently flowing.
9: Obviously we had to bring coal power plants back into operations. We had to invest into bringing for a certain period of time new gas into Germany. It was not a question of whether we like it or whether um, we, we not like it, but it really it's a must for the society.
8: Skyrocketing gas prices have already forced some German companies to curb production. Inflation, mostly due to rising energy prices, hit 10 per cent in September. We haven't planned. And amid fears of shortages, the EU agreed on voluntary cuts to energy usage this winter. In the at the same time, the German government says it will borrow almost 200 billion dollars to shield consumers from soaring costs. A policy that for Claudia Kempfert, a longtime advisor to the German government, doesn't make sense.
10: Actually, the households are not saving enough gas, but uh, also the government is doing the next mistake in announcing that we might get a gas price cap. And that uh, brings a signal to the private household, oh, everything is fine. We can continue in consuming gas as we did in the past.
8: Are you worried about the winter?
10: If the winter gets very cold and we do not get any rushing gas anymore, it might come to scarcities.
8: Some Germans are not waiting around to find out. Domestic solar panel sales were up 22% in the first half of the year. Jochen and Marika Schmittmann have come to this Berlin workshop to learn how to operate one for their balcony. Because energy
10: costs have skyrocketed so much that we are simply saying we can somehow throttle them.
8: They are also hoping to be part of a renewable energy transition, one that is now happening alongside an energy emergency. Claire Sebastian, CNN.
1: Well, the European energy crisis and Russia's war on Ukraine are set to dominate discussions at the International Monetary Fund meeting in Washington. Uh, the EU says it'll use every lever to keep the financial system stable despite the threat of energy flows. Um, Mairead McGuinness is uh, European Commissioner for Financial Stability, Financial Services, and the Capital Markets. You've been busy recently, haven't you? Just explain. Um, What you're getting out of these meetings in terms of support for Ukraine, because the feeling is in Kyiv, of course, is that you can always do more.
10: Indeed, I mean, uh, Europe's support for Ukraine is very, very strong, and that's the message I'm getting here as well. Uh, when I meet colleagues from other parts and other places, I think the issue is around how energy has been used and indeed food have been used as blackmail, really, by Vladimir Putin. So we are already um, weaning ourselves away from Russian fossil fuel because he is playing very dangerous games with it. We've got our storage uh, quite complete, almost um, close to 95% gas in store. We're preparing well for this winter. Energy efficiency is a real key issue. And I saw in your report there how individuals are taking action and companies are doing the same. I mean, the truth is that this war is horrific for Ukraine and and we empathize and sympathize with the citizens there. It also speaks to another truth that the European Union was over-reliant on a very unreliable supplier of gas, and that is Russia. We are now requiring ourselves to become more resilient and do it fast. So infrastructure, construction is really, really important. Getting a diversified range of suppliers to give us gas that we need, and the US and others are are, are doing that for us. But clearly, there's a price implication. So when it comes to my role on financial stability, for me, the key, there are two key points. One is, out of COVID, we might have anticipated some instability, that didn't happen. And that is because the financial crisis, uh, we reacted in the right way, we put in place strong regulations. So our financial system is well resilient and well capitalised to deal with shocks uh, and crisis. We're in a very different place. This uh, is a war, an illegal invasion, perhaps prolonged. So we are mindful to watch for problems that might arise around uh, financial instability. Um, We also have uh, the ESRB clearly saying that there could be problems down the road. It is my role and the role of my colleagues to keep a very close eye on all of the parameters and to prepare and be wise to what might come out of this crisis. What's interesting for me here when I talk to colleagues from the US is that the financial system and indeed the corporates um, appear to be strong and this is their message. We know inflation is a big concern for for citizens and business and interest rates are rising. uh, But I I don't get a sense in which there is a great deal of angst. Uh, But it is always the role of policymakers to move further and watch uh, the weaknesses that might be in our system.
1: Um, You're clearly very well prepared. Um, If it's a particularly cold winter, though, you can't um, sort of prepare too much for the temperatures and um, you don't get enough gas in. How concerned are you about blackouts um, on the European mainland?
10: Well, there's been lots of discussions across the 27 member states about what if we don't have enough energy, what if there's a very harsh winter. Uh, We can't control that, but what we can do is control what we have. And therefore, the issue of energy efficiency, um, of waking us all up to the idea that you might be a bit more careful about switching on uh, power, a bit more uh, investing in what you might do internally in your business or your home so that you use less energy. And equally, and I think this is the big challenge... And perhaps... Opportunity. We talk about the European Green Deal, moving away from fossil fuel. This war requires us to do that more rapidly. So private investment must go towards renewables. We have to get rid of the bottlenecks in the supply system and indeed in permitting. But I gather and get from all of our member states a desire to ramp up investments in renewables, to tell citizens about how and when and what methods they can use to reduce their consumption, because that also reduces the costs for individuals and for businesses. So, indeed, it's sometimes in moments of deep concern and worry about what might happen that we make decisions which help us avoid that the worst would happen. And that's why okay. we have been working as a commission, not yeah. just yesterday, but for months to prepare for what might lie ahead.
1: I just want to ask you in your role on financial stability. Obviously, I'm speaking to you from London and the markets are in chaos here because of this Uh, mini-budget, as the government calls it. Talk of another U-turn today from the government in an effort to stabilise the markets. How concerned are you uh, that, that that instability in the British markets may infect the EU markets?
10: Well, look, we watch our own patch, but also we watch what's happening globally. And this is a globalized world where energy and politics interplay. Um, For me, the issue for Europe is that thus far our system is strong, but we watch for all points of perhaps weakness. And sometimes it is the unexpected that can cause difficulties. And indeed, my conversations this week are about those issues. So we wouldn't comment directly uh, on a third country, on our neighbor, the United Kingdom. But of course, we're mindful of what's happening around the world. And I think the big word that everyone uses here and indeed in Europe is uncertainty. Uh, And some, you know, when you have uncertainty, markets are nervous and they might uh, over exaggerate or over, if you like, react to signs of um, upset in the marketplace. So that we have to be very mindful about swings uh, um, and balances in our system. My role is to protect financial stability in the European Union. We have a good, solid bedrock of regulation. Regulation matters in times of crisis. And I think that when we work together, both internally in the EU and with our global partners, we can minimise the disruption that might arise from all of these unpredictable, uncertain issues that we are surrounded by. And don't forget, this comes after a pandemic, COVID-19, which we managed really well to hold on to stability, but there are clearly some hangover effects on supply chains. So these are times when policymakers need to get a good night's sleep and be eyes wide open and alert to any weak. Weaknesses that may be in our system.
1: Mairead uh, McGuinness, thank you very much indeed for joining us in Washington, D.C.
10: Thank
1: you. Uh, Richard Quest will bring you an all-star cast of guests at the IMF meetings in tonight's Quest Means Business. It's on a little later than usual, though, 10 p.m. in London and 11 p.m. in Frankfurt. Do stay with CNN. Coming up, U.S. consumers feel uh, the pain of rising prices. A closer look at the new inflation numbers next. Welcome back to First Move. Uh, The headlines this hour, the British pound on the rise and bond yields are falling after reports that the UK government might announce a U-turn on controversial tax cut plans. Not their first one. Uh, Meanwhile, Wall Street opening sharply lower after the latest US inflation data came in hotter than expected. The Consumer Price Index climbed 8.2% last month from a year ago. Bad news for the Federal Reserve as the central bank tries to cool those rising prices. Let's speak to Nathan Sheets, the chief, the global chief economist at Citibank. He previously served as Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Really frustrating numbers, I imagine, for the Federal Reserve. They've been acting very aggressively to try to tame inflation. It has come down a bit, hasn't it, but not nearly as fast as perhaps they'd hoped.
9: Yeah, this is a pretty painful report in a lot of dimensions, and uh, as you highlighted, the uh, the markets are responding, and uh, it uh, pretty much locks in a 75 basis point rate hike uh, by the Federal Reserve uh, at its upcoming meeting. Now, digging into the numbers a bit, and we're still kind of in the early stages of parsing through it, there is uh, a silver lining in the sense that we finally started to see some decline in goods uh, inflation. And that feels like, consistent with supply chain pressures coming off the boil and the like, that that is starting to cool. But really the bad news here, the concerning news, is that services inflation accelerated. And that's reflecting the tightness of the labor market, rising wages, and that's the part of inflation now that's most persistent. And I think the part that has the Fed the most concern.
1: Yeah, those market numbers are really sharply down, aren't they? The, the stock market numbers down uh, more than 2% on the Nasdaq and the s and 500. Also, looking at the monthly um, price jump, it's at 0.4%, isn't it? Which is much higher than last month. So what figure should we be looking at here?
9: Well, uh, uh, the headline, the 0.4, uh, accelerated. That was higher than we were expecting. I think uh, our expectations, which were uh, consistent with consensus, were something more like 0.2. But the real, the real ugly bit of this is in the core, and particularly in core services, where uh, core services have now accelerated and are rising by close to, to 7% relative to a year ago, and, and extinguishing uh, that inflation and its shelter, its medical services, its transportation services, instead of all of that is driven by wages, extinguishing that inflation from the system is going to be a first-order challenge for the Federal Reserve and uh, is likely uh, going to require Uh, rates that are notably higher than we even have so far.
1: I wanted to ask you about a big international story. I'm not sure how close you've been watching the ins and outs of British politics, but the government under huge amount of pressure and the market's very unhappy with the latest mini budget, as they called it, this uncosted plan to cut taxes. Uh, It's put a lot of pressure on the British central bank, the Bank of England. Uh, Someone described it to me as a case of them... um, trying to drive, but you know, putting their foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time because the way they're buying up bonds, trying to calm the markets, but also trying to fiddle around with interest rates. Uh, what do you think of the performance of the Bank of England at the moment?
9: The, uh, the Bank of England has been dealt an extraordinarily tough hand. Uh, on the one hand, uh, they've got to fight inflation. Inflation in the UK is is soaring in response to global pressures, but now more eminently the, the rising price of, of, of gas. And uh, that's uh, a first order challenge for them. But at the same time, you have the government coming out with this discretionary fiscal stimulus and the market's choking on that inconsistency between a contractionary central bank and a stimulative uh, government policy. And the the Bank of England is leveraged into buying bonds, which feels inconsistent, as you say, with what they're trying to do uh, with their rates policy and tackling uh, uh, inflation. Uh, I think the Bank of England has played its hand reasonably well. Uh, I would quibble Uh, With Andrew Bailey's explicit deadline that he's given the markets, it's kind of Friday and we're out, Friday and that's it, that those kinds of hard deadlines tend to exacerbate financial stability risks. And if anything, make the situation you're trying to address all the more severe and increase the probability of spillovers uh, into other markets. Uh, I think that there may be a little bit of posturing between the bank and the government, where the bank is hoping to put some pressure on the trust government to do a U-turn. And some of the news flow this morning suggests that maybe that's under consideration.
1: Yeah, they certainly seem to be heading in that direction. Uh, Nathan Sheets, chief or global chief economist of City. thank you so much for joining us with your insight on these really complex issues today. Uh, Now, the oil company uh, Total Energies says it is offering staff in France a 6% salary raise amid a damaging strike over pay. There are still long queues at gas stations across France as strikers blockade oil refineries. Labour unions haven't yet responded to the offer uh, from Total Energies. Uh, Joining me now, CNS Jim Bittman in Paris. What's your insight? Are they finally going to find some resolution here?
7: Well, there is some evidence of a thaw. At least one of the refineries now is back off strike. Uh, That leaves four four of the seven refineries in France on strike. Uh, Those are all four of them are run by Total. And uh, we'll have to see what the unions say, how they react to this offer, which has just come up this afternoon. Uh, in uh, in very good terms, it sounds like it's six percent, a six percent raise, as well as a bonus, which is about the equivalent of one month's salary for the refinery workers. Um, but the union had been hoping for this. Is the CGT, anyway, uh, was most radical of the unions in the refineries. Um, the union had been hoping for a ten percent raise. Uh, so it's unclear whether or not the the workers at the remaining four refineries will go back to work. Even if they were all to go back to work today or tomorrow, uh, it's going to still cause disruptions, and especially lines at the gas station probably well into next week. The head of the CGT, uh, Mr. Bartonets, has uh, asked that uh, workers across France go on strike and a general strike next week on Tuesday and that may be one of the real dangers for the government with this settlement that's taking place And they of course would like to get this settled and they've they've gone as far as requisitioning workers to work in the refinery uh, they'd like to get this settled as possible but the danger in that is that uh, the other workers the other public sector workers are all going to come in and say wait if these guys are getting six percent we're going to want six percent uh, and they're going to ask for across the board raises so there may be continued strikes here uh, in other sectors as well as
1: what we're seeing right now max okay jim in paris we'll keep watching thank you straight ahead uh, the january 6th committee returns for its public hearing in first public hearing in months we discuss what the next bombshells could be The January 6th committee returns today for its first public hearing in months. The committee is expected to reiterate that former President Donald Trump is a danger to democracy. Sources say it could feature new testimony and evidence, but no witnesses will be appearing in person at least. Sarah Murray joins me now with the details. Hi, Sarah.
11: Hi there. That's right. As you said, unlike the previous hearings, we are not expecting live witnesses today, but there are still a number of areas where the committee could be breaking new ground. We are expecting them to be using new video, perhaps from witnesses we've seen before, and new witnesses they interviewed over the summer, as well as new emails from the U.S. Secret Service. But it is clear that they have a one message that they want to drive home to U.S. voters ahead of the midterms, and that's that Donald Trump still poses a danger. The House Select Committee investigating January 6th, preparing its closing arguments ahead of the midterms. There's some new material that, you know, I found as we got into it pretty surprising. Sources say the committee will use today's hearing to hammer home that former President Trump is still a clear and present danger to democracy.
6: I do think that he poses a threat to democracy. He failed to act that day. He had every opportunity to call off the mob and condemn the violence. We've seen from tape testimony uh, from several of my colleagues that. Folks were pleading with him to do that, and he didn't ever pick up the phone once.
11: The committee may present new evidence from witnesses who were in Trump's cabinet, including former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of Treasury Steve Mnuchin, and former Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao. Chao resigned from her position on January 7th. Evidence could be presented from Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas. The committee questioned her about her false allegations of election fraud after the 2020 presidential election.
7: We still have significant information that we've not shown to the public that's available to us.
11: The committee is also preparing to present new communications from the Secret Service after the agency recently turned over more than a million communications. An official with the Secret Service also telling CNN that agents did reach out to members of the Oath Keepers prior to the Capitol attack as part of standard intelligence and response duties. The committee will try to argue links between Trump's inner circle and far-right extremist groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys.
7: The inner circle includes the three people that he pardoned between uh, the election in November and January 6th, uh, Flynn, Stone, and Bannon, I call them the Flynn Stones, uh, then absolutely there is uh, abundant uh, evidence that we are going to present about, for example, Stone's um, enmeshment with domestic violent extremist groups.
11: Trump's staunch ally, Roger Stone's communications with these groups is under the committee's scrutiny. CNN obtained clips from a documentary that followed Stone for portions of about three years. In the clip, Stone is heard advocating for violence before January 6th.
9: Excellent. the violence, let's get right to the violence.
11: The director tells CNN Stone was in constant contact with the Proud Boys.
7: Did he spend a lot of time with members of the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or any groups like that, QAnon people?
0: Uh, Proud Boys, uh, yes. He, I mean, Proud Boys, uh, he's very close to the Proud Boys.
11: Now, Roger Stone has insisted he did nothing wrong, but of course, we're waiting to see what new evidence could be unearthed today. And even after today's hearing, the committee is still going to have work to do. They need to finish off their final report and they still need to decide if they are going to make any criminal referrals to the Justice Department.
1: Okay, Sarah Murray, thank you for joining us. You can watch the January 6th hearing live today with Aniston Cooper and Jake Tapper. It all begins at 1pm in Washington, 6pm in London, right here on CNN. Now, next to a huge legal win for family members of children killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting. The case against Infowars hosts Alex Jones saw them awarded an eye-watering sum by the jury. It comes after Jones spent years spreading disinformation about the shooting. Our Jean Cazares has the details on the case in this report. Ladies and gentlemen, the jury...
0: A stunning verdict in Connecticut. This is a moment years in the making. And nearly a decade after the Sandy Hook school shooting. This is sending the right message that people are good and that good does prevail. A Connecticut jury of six unanimously decided right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones must pay $965 million in compensatory damages to 15 plaintiffs, 14 are family members of victims and the 15th is an FBI agent who responded to the shooting scene.
3: A jury representing our community and our nation rendered a historic verdict a verdict against Alex Jones's lies and their poisonous spread. And a verdict for truth and for our common humanity. The whole thing was fake.
0: The InfoWars host spent years spreading disinformation about the 2012 Sandy Hook massacre, which left 20 children and six educators dead, calling the shooting a hoax and alleging the families involved were crisis actors. During four weeks of emotional testimony, family members of the victims described how they had been harassed over the past decade.
8: I got sent pictures of dead kids because I was told that as a crisis actor, I didn't really know what a dead kid looked like.
0: And she said, who's that? And I said, that's my son, Ben. He died in his first grade classroom at Sandy Hook School. And she said, what? I said, yeah, he, he died at Sandy Hook. And she said, you're lying. That didn't happen. Plaintiffs and their attorneys were visibly emotional when the jury's decision was read. One of them, Robbie Parker, the father of six-year-old victim, Emily.
3: The payoff for me was being able to take Emily's story back. Being able to throughout all of this mess, remind people about who she was and what she meant to me and her mom and her sisters. It's not just the families that are on this lawsuit that have been victims of Alex Jones. There are numberless amount of people in this country, even his own listeners, that have fallen victim to Alex Jones. So I think this number represents more than just us.
0: Jones did not attend the verdict. Instead, he was streaming it live on his Infowars show.
8: Defamation slash slander
0: damages, past and future, $24 million. Yeah! Mocking the decision and using it to fundraise.
1: I don't have any money, so it's all big jokes.
0: Money is all that Alex Jones cares about. And the only way to start to explain how he's made us feel is to, to hit him in the pocket. It is unclear when or how much of the money the plaintiffs will ultimately see. But some plaintiffs see it as a warning for those who spread these types of lies. People like Alex Jones will have to rethink what they say, how they say it, how long they say it. Jones' attorney planning to appeal.
9: Well, certainly it's more than we expected. Um, That's an understatement. But we look very much forward to an appeal in this case. Today is a very, very, very dark day for freedom of speech.
1: Uh, we'll have much more on this uh, story around the inflation after the break for you. Back in just a moment. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks down sharply after inflation came in hotter than expected for September. Uh, the Consumer Price Index rose 8.2% from a year ago, raising fears that the Federal Reserve will continue With its steep interest rate hikes, we're going to go back to Rahel uh, to see if things are getting any better. The numbers are still down, but not as bad as they were.
2: The, the lows that we've seen. But, Max, you know, we're only 30 minutes into the trading session, so it's looking like it could be a choppy day. Max, you know, we spoke within the last hour about that hotter-than-expected inflation report, and the markets weren't open then. They are open now, and they are, clearly speaking, they do not like what we saw, which was an acceleration of inflation for the month of September on a monthly basis 0.4 percent, on a yearly basis 8.2 percent. But what was also problematic about this report is not just that we saw inflation increase in essential categories, like shelter or accommodations, food, medical care. But it's also that core inflation, which the Fed pays even closer attention to, that continued to accelerate 0.6% on a monthly basis or 6.6% over the last year. So, Max, what this essentially means is this was another gut punch. This was another harsh dose of reality, certainly for us American consumers, Certainly central bankers at the Federal Reserve, but also investors, that this inflation fight uh, might prove to be quite difficult to solve and might be with us for quite some time. You think about the Fed, it's already raised interest rates five times this year. There are two more meetings this year. And so it is looking like, Max, unfortunately, we are still in the very early days of this because the medicine doesn't seem to be working, not yet at least.
1: You're wearing the right color, at least, Rahel. Thank you for joining us. That's it for the show. Uh, thanks for watching. Uh, Connect the World with Becky is next.
3: I'm Dr. Sanjay
6: Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an
2: upcoming episode.